Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Lawrence... It's The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the BFI. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. Anna, why so serious? Such a bad joke, mate. Come on. You're better than this. I asked, <laughs> skipping quickly on, because this episode <laughs> will be drawing on about Joker, Todd Phillips's origin story of the ultimate comic book baddie. But for now, Anna, what have you been watching? Well, I've been preaching about this show that I accidentally discovered on our favourite streaming service. Uh, the called- BFI Player. Moving on, called Unbelievable, which is created by Susanna Grand, who is a writer, director, producer. She's most famous for creating Party of Five in the 90s and also writing Ever After and Adam Brockovich. It's essentially a detective story about two female detectives who are pursuing unknowingly the same serial rapist. And then they, at the beginning of the series, team up and realize that they have a serial perpetrator in their hands. It's based on a true story, but specifically it's based on a podcast and a ProPublica article about this case of this woman who was sexually assaulted. I know this is hard, but I need to ask you some questions about what happened. He tied my hands. He said if I screamed, he'd kill me. No signs of forced entry. Doors and windows were locked. No DNA. Not a single neighbor saw or heard a thing. And then kind of disbelieved by the state and sort of mistreated by the detectives and all the systems in place that are designed to protect people and to protect women, essentially made her doubt her own experience. I'm pretty positive that it happened. Pretty positive or positive. They just kept asking me the same question. How come your story doesn't add up? I wanted to go home. I don't have a victim here. It's bogus. She made it up. And then turned it on her, so she was sued by the state for putting in a fake claim of rape when actually she was indeed raped. And it was a vital kind of case that was part of a much larger case. So that's kind of the thing that's explored in the series. But it stands out so much because the writing is brilliant. The key detective leads are played by Tony Collette, who's always excellent, and Merritt Weaver, who is not a household name, even though she's an Emmy Award winner, but you might know her from Nurse Jackie and Godless. She's always such an astounding presence on screen. And it's such an interesting point of view story and it feels so intriguing to watch it. Black mask, bindings, early morning attacks. I think he's done this before. Aurora. 
18 months ago. Intruder, black mask, backpack, tighter out to photos. To date, has not been caught. It feels like the victim stories are always front and center, and it's how they deal with trauma and how these detectives use the mechanisms they have at their disposal and their own savvy to get as much info as possible to catch the perpetrator, but also in the process, do not mistreat or misbelieve the victims of trauma. Um, so that underlying thread of kind of believing and disbelieving victims was fascinating to watch unfold. Highly recommend. Sounds really interesting. I, I have no segue. But I've been watching a documentary. Why so serious? Because <laughs> I got up early. I've been watching a documentary called Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project. And plug ahoy, this is playing at the London Film Festival. The London Film Festival is on between the 2nd and the 13th of October. That's this coming week. Anyway, Marion Stokes, the Recorder Project, is about this woman called Marion Stokes, who was an activist, a civil rights activist in the 1930s, 40s onwards. Buried in her beloved Cadillac. Stasi spied on thousands. She was also someone who recorded TV news and local news 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the best part of 30 years. They had enormous amount of furniture and archives, magazines, books. She read about 11 newspapers a day, and I don't think she ever threw one out. So she's this incredible personality who's both very smart, thinking about everything that's going on in the world around her and slightly paranoid and a hoarder at the same time. And the film tries to do justice to both sides of her personality. And it's a really interesting way to look at what we would typically call someone who has a compulsive disorder. Because if you're wealthy and usually white and a man and you're a collector for example then you're seen as someone who is very cultured and looking for something to add to your collection whereas if you are somebody who is in this case she is wealthy but if she's a black woman who's has a strong political standpoint she's seen as an eccentric when i first got there miss Oaks didn't really talk to me she introduced herself she laid down what she wanted what she expected of me but it was no conversation she would have the tapes going on different TVs throughout the apartment. So every TV she couldn't get to. So certain TVs, I would change the tapes. And Frank also had the TVs in the back that he was taping from. So it was a project for everybody to be doing. But at the same time, she is slightly eccentric because she's stacked videotapes all around her and constantly running a recording project. The most interesting part of the film is where they run side by side footage of 9-11 happening because she captured that and now it's in the archive. We get to see how people covered it literally as it was happening in the moment. So the director cleverly lines them up next to each other. So you've got like C-SPAN, ABC, Fox News. And he marks by playing them in real time when people started realising that 9-11 had happened and it was a story. So one screen will have the towers and the plane flying into it. And then it's a good couple of minutes before the next one comes in. And Fox News is way behind everybody else. Five or six minutes later, they start talking about it as a story. So for that reason, her work was vital is that you don't get to see the effect the 24-hour rolling news has unless you can see how it was actually presented minute to minute at the time and that for that reason her archive is incredibly valuable and the film does a really good job of paying tribute to that so that is record of the marion stokes project play at the london film festival send in the clouds right clear the set please for joker hangover director todd phillips's film attempts to explain the origins of a homicidal lunatic 
Joaquin Phoenix plays our proto-villain, a failing stand-up comedian called Arthur Fleck, who has singularly failed to channel his tragedy, which is loneliness, child abuse, celibacy, stunted ambition, and a persecution complex, into comedy. Meanwhile, Gotham City, piled high with garbage and riddled with super rats, is ripe for revolution. Time for Arthur to change up his act. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joker. My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose to bring laughter and joy to the world. Hey, stop them! Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? Anna, there's loads to talk about with Joker, but the most important point that I wanted to raise first is there's loads of scenes of him kind of balletically prancing around, pirouetting, dancing in his madness. Does this make this one of the ballet boy films that you love so much? How dare you? It might, right? No, not at all. About every five minutes, he's kind of twisting and turning and I dancing. I think there's, yeah, cavorting. he is. There is quite a few dancing. It's quite beautiful. It is beautiful. They sort of feel almost like little release moments, both mm-hmm. for his character and for the audience, because yeah. everything else in the film is so extremely grim. Bleak and this dark. This is not gritty. This mm. is grim. It's you relentless. know, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, Nolan's Batman trilogy. That's gritty. This is borderline in Yaritu levels of <laughs> misery <gunky>. porn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a grim joker. Yeah. <laughs> it's something funny. Stay down, freak! Um, So those kind of very beautifully shot moments of him dancing and comforting are kind of respites, especially when he has kind of his triumphant moment on the stairs. And I should say, for this whole episode, we're going to dive deep. So we're going to be in spoiler territory. Just looking to Pete because he hasn't seen it and he's shaking his head. Okay. Okay. We will Um, gently skip around, dance around any spoilers. (laughs) But I think the way that Todd Phillips actually films his body is quite interesting because... In the screening we were at, uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Todd Phillips were there for a Q&A. And Phoenix is quite tall and broad-shouldered. But in this film, I don't know how he's done it. He performs with his entire body. He's really, really skinny. He sort of does this thing where his shoulders, where he looks hunched back and tiny and small, very sort of almost invisible, like he's trying to make himself disappear as well. And those scenes where he's dancing around are are kind of grotesque, but also quite beautiful. Yeah, they are. And it's it's real physical performance, which I think is why one of the reasons why yeah. it's getting so many plaudits and people love his performance. It is people incredibly, love a physical performance. They really do. And it reminded me of something like Christian Bale in The Machinist, yes. where he's kind of shrunken down into his skin. And for more reasons than one, there's so many themes that cross those films as well. Yeah. And in The Machinist, it's Christian Bale's kind of way of dealing with trauma is that he's trying to make himself disappear because of his own guilt. And in a sense, you could argue that the Joaquin Phoenix performances of Joker is that as well. It's like he's trying to unknowingly deal with his past trauma through manipulation of his body or kind of allowing himself to be beat up and whatnot. Yeah, and shrinking away from life quite literally. Yeah. This is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen, do you? 
Edith asks the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. I did think it was an astonishing performance. I think it also, it, Todd Phillips, when, when he was at the Q&A, was mm. talking about how he wanted to make consciously 1970s character piece in that you try and see where this man came from and what he is. And I can see that you're giving me a kind of, uh, not patronizing smile as much, more just a kind of like knowing smile about to trash the film completely. Do you think he succeeded in that goal? <laughs> the reason why I saw it with all my eyes is because every single film director and film bro of that generation wants to make a 1970s gritty character study mm. in the vein of De Palma and Scorsese and Coppola in their best heydays. It's so evident and so, I'm sorry, basic. It, it is what it is. It's kind of even the references and his inspirations are all so there. They're kind of very knowing wings. And finally, in a world where everyone thinks they could do my job, check out this guy. When I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. You can say that again, pal. And there is a bit of stunt casting as well of Robert De Niro as the host of the TV show that Arthur Fleck idolizes, which is kind of a direct, kind of perverse continuation of his character in The King of Comedy. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest King of Comedy... Rupert Pupkin. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. You could argue that Arthur Flack is kind of a version of Rupert Pumpkin as well. And a version of Travis Bickle, obviously. Absolutely. There's so much rehearsal in this. So a lot of Arthur sat around in his apartment with a gun in some cases saying, talking to an imaginary hmm. person. You're talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Saying, oh, you're looking, essentially, are you looking at me? I don't see anybody else here. And doing it again and again. I really did feel the taxi driver vibes, but I thought in that sense, for the first half of the film at least, it was semi-successful in that regard because Arthur Fleck, especially with Phoenix's performance, is incredibly watchable mm. and engaging, but he's so unreliable. It's an entirely subjective film. Everything is from his point of view and his point of view is extremely twisted. So in the same way as Taxi Driver, you're presented with this version of the world through his eyes, but you never really know if it's the real one or if it's distorted. If even the the mess and the grittiness of Gotham City in this film is because he sees the world that way. I like that. And if he sees that, you know, with the in the very beginning of the film, he goes to see his social worker who is, you know, very obviously disinterested and not really engaged with a clearly disturbed man. Um, you know, he gives her his notebook, which is essentially like a serial killer notebook. It's very reminiscent of, you know, Kevin Spacey's book in uh, Seven. Tons of scribbles and really aggressive writing and kind of pornographic images. And she's casually kind of like, oh, how's your job going? And I wonder if that disinterest that he sees all around him is because he feels that way. 
I really like the idea that Gotham City is a kind of mental projection of what's going on in his head. And I hadn't thought about that. And it, that gives it the extra, it is quite finchery anyway, but it gives it an extra Fight Club vibe, if you know what I mean. That, Absolutely. That fantasy and what he wants his life to be plays into what we see on screen. And even in the way that, and maybe I'm giving a bit too much credit to the direction here, because I actually don't think it's that smart or that visually interesting. In the scenes where he's dancing, his entire body movements and the way that he kind of operates in the space around him changes. So I took them as fantasy scenes, essentially, of him. That's the way that he sees himself in his idealized version of himself. But that's not probably the reality, or maybe it is. And his hunchback version of himself is just how he feels usually when he's operating in the world. Gotham has lost its way. What kind of coward would do something that cold-blooded? Someone who hides behind a mask. I used to think that my life was a tragedy. But now I realize it's a comedy. I think we're dancing around the subject, but there's been a lot of brouhaha about this film online, particularly talking about its depiction of toxic masculinity and asking us how much we're expected to pity the fool in this film and see the world through Arthur's eyes, which we've talked about, but also sympathise with Arthur and understand how a lonely, abused man becomes a violent, aggressive killer. Do you think it's a quote-unquote problematic film in that sense, or how did you see it as, as its kind of depiction of masculinity? I was very intrigued, and I'm genuinely very intrigued by depictions of masculinity, especially within the world of comic book, because that's um, extremely mainstream stories that can have a lot of depth to them. I don't think this film is as interesting as it thinks it is. It's garnering a lot of attention because it's a massive release. It's a massive film and it's a massive kind of reinterpretation of a of a beloved character and a beloved villain. I don't think it's necessarily that problematic. I think it's the same levels of kind of problems that you can argue around films like Taxi Driver even, you know, when we're focused on someone who is unreliable and disturbed and ultimately violent, asking us to empathize or understand a person of that ilk is always going to be a tension with the audience. But I don't think that's inherently problematic. There's been some writing about this being an incel-friendly film. And for people who don't know what incel culture is, don't Google it. It's a deep, dark, dark place on the internet. Um, Essentially, it's involuntary celibate men who feel wronged by society and by women who they consider deny them sex, which is their right as males essentially. And I don't think that's a fair label to put on Joker. It limits the scope of the film, I think. It's not about insult culture. It's about male entitlement. It's about definitely privilege. But I think there is no overly kind of aggressive sexual behavior in Joker's character. He fantasizes about his neighbor who there is one moment that I thought was extremely relatable, which is where she shows him one smidge of kindness and he becomes obsessed with her. Yeah. 
And he stalks her and follows her and then creates a fantasy world around her. And he barely knows her. He's just seen her in an elevator for five minutes. That's behavior that belongs to his character type rather than kind of men in general. Yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's an interesting film in that it skips like a stone across all kinds of contemporary issues without really going in depth on any of them. So there's elements of Trumpism in there. There's anti-elite sentiment. There's um, things like capitalism on the rot and how we deal with that. There's masculinity and loneliness and a lack of connection. All of these things are very, very pertinent at the moment, but it never fully addresses them. And I was struggling Mm. to find out somehow if that's because it's a quote-unquote superhero film or if that's because Todd Phillips is more interested in talking about the character study in the 70s style Mm. than he is talking about Joker. Because if you think about it as a film about the DC Comics character, the Joker, it's not actually that successful really in elucidating why that character comes to be because it tends to throw away a lot of the lore about the Joker that makes the character interesting in the first place. And if you look at Heath Ledger's performance in the Dark Knight films, for example, he already tries to tell you the story about who he is in those films. There's those amazing scenes where he explains how he gets the smile and the scars on his face. You want to know how I got these scars? In one instance, he says it's his dad who abused him. My father was a drinker and a fiend. And one night, he goes off crazier than usual. In seconds, he says, they're self-inflicted. But he doesn't believe either of those stories. And neither should we, and neither should the person that he's telling them to. And that's what makes the Joker's character compelling, right, is that he's reasonless. And by trying to do a 1970s character study of Joker here, Todd Phillips is trying to give him reason and trying to understand why this character came to be. I understand that as a human impulse, but as a fan of the rational, less chaotic Joker of, say, The Killing Joke or Mm -hmm. the Batman animated series, 
there shouldn't be a reason to why Joker does things because that's what makes him terrifying to us as a pop culture icon, right? The fact that you can't reason with him. There's no kind of humanity or logic there, really. Well, what are you waiting for? Kick the hell out of me and get your standing ovation. Come on! No, not this time. And that's why, without getting too geeky, he's always been an interesting foe for Batman, who is the greatest detective, rationale, has full of rationale, is about logic, is about justice. And those two head-to-heads, the Cain and Abel situation between them, which this film alludes to pretty strongly, by the way, is the actual drama of the DC world that it's built. And mm-hmm. weirdly, by trying to give the Joker humanity, Tom Phillips has stripped away some of the interest of the character. When I kept thinking about Joker, I thought about it as two films. One is a gritty character study in the vein or trying to be taxi driver-esque. And then a comic book movie about the greatest comic book villain probably that existed. But it takes away everything that makes the Joker interesting. Exactly for all the reasons that you just elucidated. He's pure randomness. He's an agent of chaos, which makes him unpredictable. And that's what made Heath Ledger's performance so powerful is he was clearly brilliant and demented and entirely random. There was no sense to anything he made. So there was no way of predicting his movements. And this gives him a tragic backstory. It's so uninteresting. It makes it so essentially trad and boring and oh you've got a sad backstory and oh you've got a reason to hate Batman which we won't go into because I think people throw (laughs) something at me but it's it makes everything so basic I keep coming back to this word there is no actual depth in this story as a kind of character piece around Joker because it's trying to do two very separate things and I don't think it's connected them very well. It kind of lives in in three worlds and lives in the DCU um, and alludes very heavily and heavy-handedly, in my opinion, to kind of subsequent Batman stories. Kind of lives in this, you know, mock fanboyish approach to Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy and De Niro and Scorsese and that ilk of new Hollywood, gritty, dark character studies, especially of kind of lonely, detached men. And then it sort of lives in the Trump era and the kind of the the years of austerity and inequality and of people protesting and rebelling against establishments. The scenes of kind of rioting of people in the streets look like news footage from today. So it was always kind of in this world of, is this the 70s? Is this the early 80s? I think coming to the film's defense, and God knows a Warner Brothers film made from a DC property does not need any defending, but I do think that those issues are cyclical and that is part of what the the film is trying to talk about. So, you know, New York in the late 70s, early 80s was not a nice place. There were garbage strikes that looked like that and you would have had protests and riots and, and looting and all that kind of stuff going on in the city that was essentially falling apart. Gotham City is a nice parable for that style. In the modern era, the film does kind of clumsily and clunkily allude to Trumpism. But there are a few nice touches in there. For example, one of the characters who's a senior politician or Mm. about to be a senior politician calls the crowd jokers, right? And so they take, instead of seeing that as an insult, they take that and make that their own. And I think you could kind of compare that to Hillary Clinton calling Trump voters deplorables, right? And there is an element of allusion there that is slightly more subtle than the rest of the film and makes it 
semi-interesting. I just think that Todd Phillips is trying to do so much and he's trying to tick off so many Mm -hmm. cultural social boxes at the same time as pay homage to his favourite films and his favourite filmmakers that he doesn't really ever dig into anything with any depth or interest. Whereas a film like Nightcrawler, for example, Mm -hmm. which is trying to do the same thing, right? And is essentially, as Jake Gyllenhaal used to say when on the press circuit, he said it's his superhero film, right? The path of the character in that film is the ascent from a nobody who's being abused all the time, who's recognized the system, found the chinks in it that he can stick a crowbar into and worked out how to essentially abuse a systematic process in order to further himself, which is what Arthur Fleck is doing here in clumsier, more violent ways that are far more self-pitying and therefore less interesting. Excuse me, sir. I'm looking for a job. I'm a hard worker. I set high goals. My motto is, if you want to win the lottery, you have to make the money to buy a ticket. So what do you say? I could start tomorrow, or even why not tonight? No, I'm not hiring. So I think Todd Phillips was trying to do a Nightcrawler-style character study. Well, first, go around, get a shot inside the car. Hey, back away. I got it, I'm back, I'm back. Will this be on television? Morning news, if it bleeds, it leads. Are you currently hiring? But you're right, it just falls flat now and then. The thing that really kind of kills it for me as a Joker film is the fact that I don't believe him as an arch villain and Batman's ultimate nemesis. He's not capable of becoming that agent of chaos. Even by the end of the film, I couldn't buy it. Everything seemed entirely accidental and fueled by a very entitled and kind of, you know, obsessive need that Arthur Fleck has for recognition, for fame, for love in many ways. So, you know, he is a child of abuse and his life is not great. Let's just say it like that. He's been dealt a rough card. But even from the very beginning, he positioned himself as a nice guy. And that, I think, is kind of one of the very interesting bits of it. Mm. He has this righteousness about him that sort of fuels his rage. Why am I not famous? Why am I not richer? Why are people being mean to me? Why am I like this when I'm such a nice guy and I just want to spread joy and love to the world? That is the kind of the the really scary bits. The spots where I found him most engaging was when he was being laughed at. Mm. There's the saying, or I'm probably misquoting someone, but they say that women fear being killed by men and men fear being laughed at. And I think that's kind of the essence. He snaps when he's being laughed at, when he's being mocked. And that it's just not good enough to create an arch villain. And frankly, none of it seems planned. And I know kind of the was saying before, and you were saying as well, that kind of the power of the Joker as a villain is his chaotic and dangerous randomness. But this is just a man on the edge, entirely trying to serve himself, but not really knowing how. I agree. But if you, again, take the charitable view and see this as Joker's young Sherlock Holmes years, right? Like this is his high school if you know what I mean, in terms of character development. This is where the Joker character starts off. And you have to assume that progressively through the law, through the universe, he becomes less and less rational and more and more crazy because that's what he gets celebrated for, is the craziness. And that's what people love him for and give him attention for. So I think it's tricky, again, because we come back to the incel thing of if people don't love me, then what am I? And mm-hmm. that's a, that is a purely human emotion. And that is is interesting in a drama, but it's not particularly interesting in this kind of melodramatic superhero film because it just comes across as self-pitying. And there's a key line in the film where Joker is interviewed on the chat show towards the end. 
And he says, I'm not political, I'm apolitical. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to say that of the character at that point, you strip everything that actually makes him interesting to the wider world because we don't know enough about the character there. Weirdly, that statement goes on to the film itself in that Todd Phillips is essentially saying with his co-writer, this is not a political film, guys, don't worry about it. It's just a superhero film. But you can't, I nearly said, wear your cape and fly at the same time. Can't have your cake and eat it. Is that you can't do a weighty political character study that tries to tell the backstory of a cultural icon that we all know and fear and love and try and make it something that is apolitical and a nonsense. Whereas Nolan's films, which were essentially crime thrillers, said a lot about our world at the time. This film is more of a melodrama and tries to float into the realm of fantasy at the same time as being grounded in real world issues. And that's why it's constantly pulled between the two, I mm -hmm. think, and just like ends up in midair. I totally agree with you. But there's one thing about the film that we haven't discussed yet, and that is its depiction of mental illness. What's your name? My name's Arthur. Well, there's something special about you, Arthur, I can tell. Where are you from? I live right here in the city with my mother. She says I was put here to spread joy and laughter. She always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. <laughs> what did you think of it? Again, it was muddled, right? Because mm -hmm. you're right, it's a film of two halves. So the first half is Arthur Fleck you get to see his life. So he lives with his mom. His mom is also has mental illness and he's her sole carer. He's working a deadbeat job as a clown holding a sign where everything must go, everything must go written on it. He doesn't have many prospects and he doesn't have any friends. And his mental illness, which he's had since birth, we're led to believe, is this kind of compulsive, compulsive laughter, which he can't control. And he has a little card saying, please excuse my laughter, it's an illness. And he's trying to connect with the world, but nobody's giving him any love back because he's too strange for the world. Again, that's a really interesting, dramatic situation and pertinent to a lot of people today. Mm. And they set that up quite nicely. It's the evolution from that and the escape from that mental illness, which is far from interesting in that it becomes the power play of a superhero story. So he discovers his quote unquote superpower, which it turns out is violence, shocker. And that becomes the thing that helps him escape mental illness, or at least embrace it and realize that it's a part of himself but that doesn't deal with the thorny issue of mental illness being something that you live with every day and have to find coping strategies for unless your coping strategy is beating somebody up on the subway which for some people it might be so it's, it's a really tricky balance again and i can see what they again they can see what mm. they're trying to do and there's interesting seeds there but it's something that doesn't quite come into fruition we never really know what his condition is, but he doesn't really know how to interact with the world. And many times he is seen sort of performing every day, you know, how to say hello, everyday kind of rituals that we just take for granted. There is a disconnect between him and the world. And that bit was fascinating to watch unfold. And then it sort of disappears in what I think is quite a flippant way as well and mildly dangerous as well. I agree. And um, before we wrap up, I wanted to talk about the marketing of the film as well, in that if you look around London at the moment and you look on the buses on the billboards, there's a giant half picture or half of Joaquin Phoenix's mm -hmm. face as Joker staring out at you. And the way that the mask is set up is really weird because it looks like the anonymous mask. And I just find it fascinating that, again, this film is trying to touch on real world issues, even to the extent where the marketing is touching on a real world icon iconography that can be quite scary or threatening or or offer a sense of community if you're that way inclined and anonymous are this kind of 
mass outfit out there that we don't know much about as as the joker tends to leads towards the end of this film and it just it's weird that we have this giant cultural product that is a mass-produced thing that millions of people are going to see and millions of people are going to discuss and it's constantly alluding to but never quite hitting on these real world issues that we're all playing into and interested in. Well, I think it's like you mentioned before, it says that it's not political, yeah. but it's clearly political. But it clearly is. The message from that and I think from the entire film is that we're kind of all Joker. Yeah. We've all been beat up by the system in one way or another. I have troubling thoughts about that because I think that's tapping into a wider cultural dissatisfaction and a political dissatisfaction with our times to sell a movie. Yes. I don't think this movie actually says that. Yes, that's right. It doesn't fully buy the thing that it's trying to sell. And and you're completely right about that. That said, I think there is an element of this film that speaks to the times we're in in terms of communication between people. And there's a, there is a good line, I think, where Joker, and I don't think he fully, as a character, earns this line, but the scriptwriters put it in anyway. He says something like, um, we don't listen to each other anymore. We just talk. All we do is talk. And that is extremely pertinent yeah. now in a, both in a, again, I'm going to bang on social media, but in a kind of social media environment. Also, if you look at our politics today, it's very much, I don't need to listen to you. I need to push through the thing that I want to happen. Mm-hmm. And that is the Joker mindset. He goes from criticizing that way of living, even albeit softly, to fully believing it and saying, I found my community and my happy place. And in a sense, my level stable playing field by fully following my own vision and never, never giving in to anybody else. Though your heart is aching, smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by if you smile. That's it for this episode. Joker will be running right across UK cinemas from October 4th. The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the BFI, is presented by me, Henry Barnes, and Dice's head of culture, Anna Bogatskaya. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes, and Anna is on... Anna B. Demento. That little voice in our head, the ringleader who cracks the whip and demands more, better, now, is our producer, Peter Sale. More of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, your last line this week comes from another Joker and is the perfect antidote to all of the misery and fury we've been chewing over. Lovey-dovey, lovey-dovey, lovey-dovey all the time. Join in, Anna. Your fans will be so happy that you finally sang again. Steve Miller, he's so good. Okay. Okay.